This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, good morning. You are listening to The Morning Run. It's 6 a.m. on Tuesday, May the 31st, the last day of the month. We're heading into June tomorrow. I'm Shazana Mokhtar in studio today with Philip C. A very good morning. I hope you were well behaved, unlike that lady, unlike that man who tried to basically throw cake at the Mona Lisa. I read about that. Uh, talk about what do you call that theatrical protest. Exactly. It's crazy, isn't it? So, so the reason he did that was because he wanted wanted to um, protest against climate change, right? He wanted to draw attention to the issue of climate change. I'm not sure if defacing the Mona Lisa is really (laughs) the right way to do it. But, uh, you know, if attention is what he wanted, he definitely got it. He definitely got it. But fortunately, there was a glass screen over the Mona Lisa. So she remains smiling somewhat. <laughs> she remains smirking at him. Smirking at him. <laughs> you can't get at me. <laughs> no amount of cake can. No amount of cake. Well, cake, uh, we don't have that on the show today, but we do have a lot of interesting conversations lined up. Beginning at 7.15 this morning, are more highways in the Klang Valley the solution to traffic congestion? We discuss the proposal to build additional highways with transport policy expert Rosli Azad. Baffling, isn't it? I mean, we have talked a lot about the need for infrastructure, but we didn't think it would be about more highways. I have to say, KL is already jam-packed with highways that are jam-packed. So (laughs) I'm not sure that more highways, which will entail more construction, would alleviate congestion in the immediate yes, to short term. I share that same sentiment, but it is very interesting that, you know, we have really come back to pre-pandemic traffic, traffic levels, have we not? Because now, even when we go to work, we try to avoid the rush hour. In the past, it was like, oh, past six months, it was easy to do so. But now it's all back to pre-pandemic levels for sure. But we shift our attention to 7.30 on something a bit more serious because North Korea launched an ICBM missile right after US President Joe Biden's trip to the Korean Peninsula and Japan. And we discussed the international response with Dr. Hu Chuping of University of Malaya. That's some farewell, right? You leave <laughs> you leave the region and then you get a, a fi- fireworks and inverted commas yeah. sent after but you. But North Korea also is, is struggling, isn't it? I mean, they had a round of uh, COVID-19 pandemic flare-up recently as well. I think they're still going into it, although they say that they are managing it well. We'll discuss uh, the situation on the ground with Chuping. And then later on at 7.45, it is World No Tobacco Day today. Uh, but we're asking the question, is vaping really a healthier alternative? We debate this with Tunku Aslahuddin, President of Vape Consumer Association of Malaysia. And just overnight, we saw results even from BAT, a British American tobacco, which were not that great as well. But I think it's a broader conversation as we heard recently about uh, our health minister also wanting to eliminate uh, cigarettes as well from that's the market. That's right. That's a, a generational endgame. We're going to discuss all that. We have all that and more today on The Morning Run. So stay with us, BFM 89.9. That was Marvin Gaye with Mercy, Mercy Me. And before that, you heard Bob Marley and the Wailers with Redemption Song. I hope that's put you in the mood, a good mood for Tuesday, you know, starting the day on a good foot. Uh, we're The Morning Run. I'm Shazana Mokhtar with Philip. C six ten in the morning on Tuesday, the thirty first of May. So we're kick starting the day with a, a talk set all about dogs this morning and pets, dogs and pets in general. Um, Philip, do you have a favorite dog breed? I do. I used to love Labradors, but I've had a love hate relationship with some of them. As a result, I've gone with mixed breeds. Mixed and, breeds, yes. mutts. Yes, mutts essentially because they're so resilient. They're so 
easy to you know live with and 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 they're so lovable i feel you know there, there's no characteristic really it's all mangled and mushed up so i like that a lot <laughs> well i think they're plentiful in malaysia for sure yeah um one of my favorite dog breeds is the newfoundland and um these are actually rescue dogs they were bred they're huge shaggy dogs and they are bred to rescue people from seas and you know ponds and stuff um and that ties in with this op-ed in the guardian asking why are we so obsessed with dogs saving human lives? I mean, we have we have visuals also. Remember of the Saint Bernard in Switzerland, where they also carry this mug jug of beer below their shoulder and collar. Okay, right, well, to my Saint you and... uh, my Saint Bernard doesn't carry beer. <laughs> he wears a red vest and helps you go through the snow. But same concept, I same suppose. Same concept, right? <laughs> and this is the broader issue about with animals, especially with dogs. We tend to lionize them. We tend to think of them as heroes. And there was this story recently about this lady where she was hiking in California and this dog attempted to try and save her from this attack from a cougar. But actually, if you look behind the scenes, actually, the cougar quickly outcast the dog and the woman actually spent <laughs> oh no, the time dog. actually attacking the cougar with rocks, pipe and tires from her wheels. So I think the question here is we tend to really elevate the dog to a certain level, right? Like they're some hero, they're going to be some saviour to our world, essentially. I feel like, um, I mean, dogs have been domesticated companions of humans for the longest time, yeah? Mm. They've just evolved to be part of humans' daily lives and just daily activities. And there's something about dogs, especially in the way, in how loyal and devoted they are to their human companions, that um, that makes it easy in turn for humans to put these dogs on a pedestal and, and see them as as life-saving creatures. Even when, as in the case of this Californian woman, the dog didn't really end up saving her life. She ended up saving the dog. Exactly. I, I, there is actually a science behind this. And and in this book, uh, Wonder Dog by zoologist Jules Howard, they actually say that unlike wolves, dogs actually make eye contact with humans. So they have this specific facial muscle for those puppy dog eyes. And so with that sustained human contact, according to one's uh, study, your oxytocin levels soar. And so that actually creates a lot more connection and empathy with the person. So perhaps there's a science behind why we love our dogs so much. And I can and I can attest to that. I have two dogs and you know my heart does melt when like I cuddle the dog and the dog's just staring at me straight in the eye, you know? So the dog has evolved to understand how humans actually connect and communicate. And, and then they're working on, on a human, that they're on that, wa- not wavelength, but they're trying to communicate in a way that humans can understand through eye contact, through, yes. through yeah. But don't you think like even as within humans, we struggle to even establish eye contact. Like, you know, you and I, we are, talk, we are seeing face to face. I'm looking at you straight in the eye. You're eyes. looking at me straight in the eye. There's a bit like of a discomfort dog. now. <laughs> oh, okay. I feel a bit of discomfort welling up inside me. It doesn't bring up. Uh, feelings of adoration or oxytocin on your part? Not yet. (laughs) Far from it at the moment. Actually, it's more discomforting. But at the same time, the dogs, when when they look at you, I can look at a dog for a very long time. And I'm very annoyed now that the producers are staring at me, (laughs) trying to establish eye contact with me. But it, it has to be said that eye contact is so key. It is. In building relationships. It is. It is. And, um, I follow um, TikTok accounts about dogs <laughs> and uh, I find it really interesting um, in terms of just learning how to decode a dog's body language yeah. and how they're trying to communicate 
uh, with humans in their own way, but also mimicking what humans do to yeah. it's it's really fascinating. It's fascinating, and, and I I think as dog owners, seeing how their expressions and responses is so visceral, so responsive, I think makes you fall in love with them even more, which explains why we lionize and love them. There is this common refrain among the dog community: humans don't deserve dogs. You know, dogs yeah. are just too good, too pure. Um, but tell us what you think. You know, do you have a favorite dog breed? Do you lionize your dog, or maybe like me, you're more of a cat person. You know, WhatsApp us. Tell us what you think. Zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine is the number. You can also tweet us at BFM Radio. We're coming up to six fifteen in the morning, heading into some messages, and when we come back, we're going to discuss the trend of unretirement. Stay tuned. BFM eighty nine point nine. That was Arcade Fire with Ready to Start. What a great way to start the Tuesday. Such a good song. Yes, Gets your is. blood pumping and heart beating. Um, I'm Shazana Mokhtar with Philip C. We're the morning run 6.20 in the morning on Tuesday, the 31st of May. Now, we're looking at this article from BBC Work Life titled, Is the End of Retirement? Is this the end of retirement as we know it? And we know that the COVID-19 pandemic has somewhat upended the ideals that we have about retirement. I mean, the typical retirement dream is that image of a silver-haired couple laughingly laughing as they lay on a beach or as they get ready to do something adventurous, you know. Um, but two years of the pandemic has really taken a dent, has put a dent in um, retirement savings and pensions. Right. Um, and a lot of people are actually coming out of retirement to go back to work. Yeah, so just to give you some context, even before the pandemic, already the concept of retirement has evolved a lot. So in the United States, right, 32% of people aged 65 to 69 were working, which was more than it was at 22% in 1994. And in the UK, employment rates actually doubled, uh, you know, between 1993 and 2018 for those older than 65. So that was pre-pandemic and that was, I think, a sign already that retirement was changing. Then, of course, as a result of the pandemic, I think many people opted for early retirement. They decided to leave their jobs early. But after the pandemic, or as we are now aging ourselves out from the pandemic, as inflation hits, as people begin to reassess their life, we're seeing more people go back to work, right? More than 3 million people had retired earlier. But now what you're seeing is that unretirement levels are at a record low at 3.3%. And I think that's a very big shift and change that's happening in such a short space of time. And there are push and pull factors on both sides, right? So on one hand, you've got inflation, which is... um, really squeezing incomes that people have, Uh, you know, higher prices mean your money doesn't go as far. And then you find that that pension pot you've been building suddenly doesn't take you as far into life as you wanted. So you might think of going back to work. But on the company side, they're also seeing a a labor shortage. So Mm. unemployment is at a record low in many countries. Um, And as a result, uh, companies are finding that, hey, we need talent uh, and we don't really have the talent pool. So they're actually asking workers that have retired to maybe come back and work on projects projects for them to fill in that gap. So you've got different um, factors uh, coming into the decision on why people decide to leave their idyllic retirement lives and go back to a working profession. I mean, ideally, especially for the older group, they would prefer a more flexible working model, which actually very much sits very nicely with the current mode and flexibility trends that are taking place also in the workplace. So it very much dovetails nicely. It's a nice situation now. We are solving both problems in which, you know, depends funds are under a lot of pressure as a result of dropping equity. Uh, so I'm sure a lot of people are trying to get back into the workspace. Employers need it. So it's a nice situation. But I wonder in three, 
four months' time, when we start to see, you know, labor markets loosen a bit, when we start to see people actually, youth unemployment start rising, the pressure might, pressures might be very different then. It's true. I, I think now there are... It's a sweet spot. It is somewhat of a sweet spot. It could be made more flexible, maybe. I think it still needs to evolve because perhaps this only um, caters to a certain class of workers, uh, Mm. workers of a particular expertise, workers at a uh, specifically high level, perhaps, who are able to tap into this flexibility. I'm wondering if this can evolve further to involve more professions, more sectors um, in in that sense, and whether this can be a long-term trend. Because as the world ages, we know many countries are facing an aging population including in Malaysia. And we are having these conversations about how the uh, retirement savings that we're building now, they're not going to be enough to be able to sustain a much a much broader older population, perhaps flexible working later in life is really the key to being able to resolve that conundrum. So we, I, I also observe really changing conversations by generation. If you ask like two generations ago, they really are looking forward to the concept of retirement and they're very clear there was a clear demarcation and line, right? 55 is the time I move on and try next something very different. But now as I as I see my peers and all that, we tend to think about working longer, 75, more to keep our brains active and engaged. So as you say, rightly, Shaz, it's really evolving this whole idea and concept of retirement. Well, tell us what you think. You know, have your retirement ideals changed post-pandemic? How do you think we need to adapt in order to cope with a larger, older population? You can WhatsApp us 018-789-8899 or tweet us at BFM Radio 625 in the morning. We're heading into the 6.30 a.m. News Bulletin. And after that, we'll check out global headlines. Here's the Eurythmics with Sweet Dreams are made of, well, just sweet dreams. Stay tuned. BFM (laughs) 89.9. That was Phoebe Bridgers with Motion Sickness. You're listening to The Morning Run, 6.40 in the morning. I'm Shazana Mokdar with Philip C. Phil, do you get motion sickness when you... I do. You do. <laughs> I, was, I took a ferry across the Greek islands and a lot came out from my mouth. Oh dear, that is not fun. That's not fun at all. Yes, I get car sick when, I, uh, when I'm in the car and I'm reading, so I try yes. not to read. Well, for a while I didn't want to go to Cameron Highlands. Because Un- of that. Because of that, unless I drove. Fraser's Hill has traumatized me. I have not been back to Fraser's Hill since that one time because of motion sickness. But in any case, it's that time of morning where we take a look at what's making headlines around the world. Uh, Phil, you've got some interesting stories to share this morning from that. Yes, what struck me, I think, in the star, and I think across all the newspapers, no consensus on regional pact between China and the Pacific. So China's foreign minister, Wang Yi, has urged the Pacific region not to be too anxious about his country's aims because China was planning to actually get an endorsement for a draft communique and five action plan seeking a sweeping regional trade and security agreement. So that fell through. I think there was a bit of opposition from some of the countries over the overarching overarching, uh, stretch reach of China here. Um, Just a bit of context, I think the Pacific Islands are a critical part of the Pacific Ocean. I think China has always wanted to build a deeper relationship with these smaller islands there. But as we know, they are always intrinsically tied to Australia. There's always been some tensions with Australia going forward. But for me, this article strikes two key considerations here. Firstly, you see the change in the political environment in Australia. And Penny Wong, the foreign minister, after she went to Japan, immediately was dispatched to the Pacific Islands. So you could see her going around, I think, trying to rebuild the relationship with uh, the Pacific Islands. But what is also very interesting with, with this case is that 
I think China has really spent a lot of time building relationship with emerging countries, right, in Asia and Africa. But I think it will be harder in the Pacific Islands because for them, their central concern is climate change. They're seeing their islands, you know, see their flood levels rising. And so they need to find a partner that can actually, and is actually committed to do that. Right. And whether China will be that partner, I suppose, is a question for yes. them. But at the same time, is Australia or any of the Western countries that partner either? Because uh, Pacific Islands and Pacific countries have been calling attention to climate change and how it impacts them for the longest time. And there has been absolutely no movement on that absolutely front. Absolutely no movement until recently, where the change of government in Australia from the Liberals to the Labour, with now Labour being very much committed to taking very decisive climate action, that actually could be a political manoeuvre as well to rebuild back relationships with the Pacific Islands. And it's very interesting because Australia and China are currently at loggerheads. Yes. So it, it gives Australia more of an incentive, I suppose, to take interest in their Pacific neighbours just Absolutely. to counter China. And the fact that um, China's maritime ambitions have also uh, caused a lot of concern in this region. You know, the fact that the Pacific Islands are islands yeah. and surrounded by sea, if the concern is whether China will build more military bases there and how is that going to affect the uh, military security a landscape of our region. Um, interesting stuff for sure. And so many moving dynamics are all very much interconnected. The economics, the politics, the environment, all interlinked together. And while China didn't manage to push through that um, large 10-nation pact, they do have bilateral agreements with some of the Pacific countries. Yes, they, they did sign a bilateral agreement with Samoa. Will they be pursuing that moving forward as well? I guess it's something that uh, we can watch as another arena of geopolitical tensions playing out. Another story that struck me was that a pact between Thailand and Vietnam to raise rice prices could prove impossible because what we knew was that Thailand, Thai's government was planning with Vietnam to create a pact between the world's second and third largest rice exporters to boost their bargaining power to help mitigate rising production costs. That is such an interesting story. I mean, I think at this point, uh, we don't have any official confirmation from either countries per se, but the fact that this proposal is being discussed and bandied about among rice producers is really intriguing. And I'm wondering how countries will take that, given that rice is such a staple in this region. Um, and the fact even Malaysia, we import our rice. We're not fully self-sufficient when it comes to our rice production. And I guess with wheat prices going up, we've always thought, OK, you know, at least rice isn't, uh, isn't at a crazy high yeah. level. But um, could that change if this uh, arrangement actually comes to fruition? Well, if you look at rice prices right, from a commodity standpoint, you know, its peak was at $20, uh, I think, per ton or something like that. Uh, in 2020, it's then collapsed and it slowly recovered back to close to $17. So it goes to show even as, as we see so much pressure on commodity prices around the world, rice is also going to be one of the beneficiaries or will be affected by it as well. I mean, if uh, in, if uh, Vietnam and Thailand decide to increase their rice prices, I'm just thinking that India would step in to um, mm. counter that gap because um, they currently have an abundance of rice supplies. They uh, who have, they've uh, put an export ban on their wheat, but rice is in full, you know, they're exporting it um, fully. Yes, that, that is the core concern here that, you know, if they raise prices, you're just going to be opening it up to competition who can offer it at a much better price. So it could just backfire. Could backfire entirely. And India is very, is very much central to this theme because if you draw the different analogies, they're talking about exporting rice, but at the same time, they're trying to import 
Russian oil at a much discounted price. So very interesting dynamics that India is caught in between both dimensions. Something that we will keep eye on moving forward. As always, 6.46 in the morning, we're heading into some messages. And when we come back, we'll take a look at what's making headlines in our local newspapers and portals. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. That was the Foo Fighters with Generator. You're listening to the morning morning one, morning (laughs) Morning run, run. morning run 6.51 in the morning. Uh, This is the time of day where we generate the stories coming out of the local newspapers and portals for your audio sampling. (laughs) Phil, what do you have in front of you this morning? Well, on the lighter note, News Straits Times, it really goes to show that if you sound like Sean Connery, you do not need to attend court. Because in the 1MDB trial involving Dadusri Najib Al-Razak and Arul Kandasamy, it was basically vacated today as uh, Tansri Muhammad Shafi Abdullah was down with a fever and sore throat. Uh, It's their lead counsel. And as their lawyer said, he sounds like Sean Connery. That's right. Basically, the court was adjourned today. Aha, uh-huh. okay. Sean Connery, Oldley, are there any other candidates? There were no other that references. <laughs> Sound well, like. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the court judge, I think, uh, responded by saying Connery is no longer around, so it's not a very good example. Okay, dokies. <laughs> Pop culture in uh, public trials. Excellent stuff. What else, uh, Phil? I think what caught my, mind also, caught my eye also is I think yesterday night, Mavcom has already released uh, the numbers and statistics over the Hari Raya flight delays. If you recall, about a couple of weeks back, there was a lot of brouhaha over the amount of flights that were delayed during the festive season mm-hmm. as people were rushing back to Balik Kampong. So from the stats, they said 500 flights delayed over one hour, while a 119 flights were delayed beyond the two hours. They said about, based on their initial findings, more than 6,000 domestic flights were operating at the time uh, throughout the Raya period. And so they've actually broken down even the delays by the different airline carriers as well. Okay, so they've got all this information. What happens next? They have this. What further action can we expect against airlines if it turns out that these delays were avoidable or preventable? So the commission said it was undertaking a further investigation into the provision of care for 160 flight delays beyond the two hours to ascertain if the necessary care as stipulated under the Malaysian Aviation Consumer Protection Code was provided to the consumers. So that will be the follow-up step taken by MAFCOM. All right, so watch this space. If you were one of those who were affected by these uh, untoward delays, you know, stay tuned and see if there's anything that can be done to rectify um, the situation you found yourselves in. Another story I think that struck my struck me as a small article in the Star, but I think it's uh, indictment of I think the bureaucracy that of our country. The placement of the first batch of Indonesian domestic workers is expected to arri- was expected to arrive today, but it has been postponed until further notice. Oh dear! Yeah, so they were slated to be deployed actually to the to Malaysia's plantation sector. Now earlier, the embassy source said that it had received three thousand requests for domestic workers from Malaysian employment agencies as well. But clearly, nothing has moved forward since then. That is terrible news for um, families or or employers who've been waiting for months upon months for um, new domestic helpers to hire. Um, I do wonder what is causing the delay or what's causing the backlog of this uh, application process from moving forward. It's something that we've been discussing uh, many times over the past couple many of months. Many times. I mean, on April 1st, Malaysia and, Indonesia, Malaysia, did sign, Malaysia and Indonesia did sign a memorandum of understanding to recruit and protect these Indonesian domestic helpers. We are now coming into month of June and still no visible sign of progress. Um, 
terrible state of affairs, really. Uh, but turning our attention to other headlines, um, I have in front of me, I was looking at this uh, article from the uh, Malaysian Insight reporting on um, the apex court to hear constitutionality of Penang's anti-party hopping law in August. So this is related to um, the anti-party hopping law that was established by the uh, Penang State Assembly in 2012. So all the way back in 2012, they had an anti-party anti-party hopping law in their books. Uh, it's being now taken to court, to the federal court, um, to discuss whether it's actually constitutional or not. Because as we know, the federal anti-hopping law is still in the discussion stage. It ha- a bill hasn't been proposed yet. Um, it was supposed to be tabled in parliament. It has not been yet. Yes. Uh, we're still waiting to see how that comes about. There was a lot of discussion, right, to enact that. And there was, in, in my understanding and estimation, cross-party support to do something like this. Although, of course, some people said, you know, we have to study the details further. There's a lot of quibbling. A so lot of quibbling. I, I think in principle, people support and the parties support anti uh, public party support support anti party hopping laws. Yes, but how this comes about is being uh, negotiated among the political parties and the government uh, to come to something that uh, they see is suitable. And of course, now we are seeing all the different politicians kind of jumping from a party to another uh, while they still can before these laws come into force. So something to keep watch on anti party hopping law. <laughs> Well, just one more last minute reminder. It's the last chance to get free vaccines because there's no more complimentary first doses for children after today, says the Ministry of Health. So, you know, this is your last chance saloon for to get all your children vaccinated. I think so far about 31, 32% of our children have been vaccinated to date. That's about three, right. three plus million, if I, yes. if I took that correctly as well. 30%, it's not, it's nowhere near, I suppose, the thresholds that we were hoping for. But today is your last chance to do so. Uh, do get it if you have not yet. Uh, we're coming up to 6.57 in the morning. After that, we have the 7 a.m. news bulletin. And then we'll be taking a look at how global markets closed overnight. Here's Joni Mitchell with Big Yellow Taxi to take you to the news. BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, the business station.